fellowships that meet each night of the week that we'd invite you to sign up for one and get involved if you haven't yet. You can do that on our website and uh, join in at any time. And also on Sunday nights, I, um, we invite people who are newer to the church to come by our house and we do a little fellowship there for that night. And um, I, I think I have a couple of openings left for tonight. So if you're here and you'd like to come by our house tonight, that'd be great. Let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 2. We're studying through the book of James, and it's a great book, but a really challenging book, very practical stuff. If, it, if you can read the book of James and not be made to feel uncomfortable, um, I don't know what's up with you, because it really makes some probing points and asks some tough questions. Speaking of tough questions, did you see anybody see the Laker game on Friday night? It was amazing. At the end of the game, it's a closeout game in Oklahoma City, and Kobe misses a shot right before the buzzer, but it's tapped in by Pau Gasol, and they won the game by a point and advanced to the next round. And and uh, but I have a point to saying that I'm I'm wondering how many of you consider yourself Laker fans. Just raise your hands. Okay, quite a few of you. Keep your hands up. Now. If you, if you are a Laker fan, but you have no idea who they're playing in the next round of the playoffs starting today, drop your hands, okay? If you haven't been to a Laker game in person this year at Staples Center, drop your hands, okay? There's a, a few people left. I should have anticipated that because I think they're playing right now. Um, if you don't have any Laker t-shirts, hats, paraphernalia, or anything like that, Raise your hand, lower your hand, lower your hand. Okay, so I got a couple other people. Now, you, you Laker fans who are left, if you don't have tickets for one of the playoff games, lower your hand. Because if you're really a fan, you, oh man, I was hoping, to, no. <laughs> but see, here's my point. We started out with all these Laker fans. We ended up with just a couple of people on some basic sort of things that, guy, I mean, if you're a fan, remember, fan is short for fanatic. And it's so easy for us to say that we're fans. And the truth is, I like the Lakers. I prefer the Lakers to any other team in the NBA. And, you know, that's, I want them to win. I want them to win another championship. And I'll read articles about them and watch things. But the truth is, even that game on Friday night, I have to confess, it's one of the first games I've had this year, Laker games, where I had it on the entire time. Usually I try to watch the last few minutes, which is where all the action is. But in this particular game, even though it's a big game, it was on, but I was reading, I was studying, I was answering emails, downloading programs to my iPad, played a couple of games of Texas Hold'em on my phone, I was talking on the phone to my brother, and finally, when there's 45 seconds left in the game, I'm going, Steve, are you watching the Lakers? There's 45 seconds left, it's one point ball game, and he's just blah, 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 blah. I go, I'm hanging up, and I hung up, and... And Ann and I watched the last 45 seconds of that game intently. Now, does that really make you a fan? You know, that, that that's it. It comes down to 45 seconds of a game, and I consider myself a fan. Well, in the same way, and see, I told you I do have a point. In the same way, 
There are some people for whom Christianity is nothing more than the level of commitment that I have to the Lakers. You know, you, you go, yeah, I'm a Christian. And if you, if you ask people if they're Christians, generally they say, yes, I'm a Christian, sort of in the same sense that people would say they're a Laker fan. I prefer Christianity to other religions. I'm like there. Maybe I have the T-shirt or the bumper sticker. I go to church periodically. don't pay that much attention, but I'm there. And I'm kind of, yeah. I mean, I've, I've picked Christianity because none of the other religions sound that good. And, you know, so I look at, oh, there's a religion, but that religion causes me to maybe have to, you know, make sacrifices like blowing myself up. So not good with that, you know. <laughs> Another religion makes you smell incense, and that's gross. I'm allergic, so I can't be that religion. I, you know, go, you know, I could be a Jehovah's Witness, but I don't really like riding bicycles. <laughs> and, you know, we go through, and then we just finally go, so, yeah, I'm a Christian. James was really concerned with that. And in fact, the whole book of James is really about James going, what is wrong with you guys that you are professing Christians and yet there's no difference in your life than there is for anyone else? The signs aren't there. He goes throughout this book and he goes, if you're a Christian, I mean, you shouldn't be a respecter of persons. You shouldn't show partiality. You shouldn't be prejudiced. That, that doesn't fit. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be blowing up in anger all the time. If you're a Christian, you should care about orphans and widows. If you're a Christian, as he goes on to say here, you ought to be interested in feeding people who need to be fed or clothed. If you're a Christian later, he says, your tongue should be under control. He talks about riches and wisdom and all sorts of other things. And James seems concerned that there's this huge disconnect with what we say we believe and actually what's happening in our lives. And the bottom line of it for James is the Christian life actually works. It actually changes things. And if it's not working for you and if changes aren't happening, maybe you just don't quite get what it's all about. Maybe there isn't that level of faith that is in the depths, that it actually makes a difference in your life. And so he's going to rattle our cages, and he's going to offend many of us, and, and yet here we come to the heart of the point of the book of James here in chapter 2, the second half, because he's getting right down to where we live and saying, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you really saved? Do you really have the kind of faith that saves people? Now, in this passage, you'll begin to discover why some people have a problem with James, why even some theologians would take issue because they think that James is different than Paul. We, we've gotten used to reading Paul because he wrote 14 books of the New Testament, and he's always talking about grace. And now here this little book of James comes along, and he's talking about works, and we kind of don't know how to put it all together, but let's read, first of all, James chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. And one, you'll see three times in, this, in these few verses, James make the point, faith without works is dead. So be looking for those. What does it profit, my brothers? If someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works, can faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, okay, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made complete? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I want to clarify, define one term for you so that you don't misunderstand it here. Here he says that Abraham, Rahab were justified by works. The word justified doesn't mean that you're made righteous. The word justified means to declare someone righteous. Justification demonstrates the existence of righteousness. It's the evidence. It's not, it's not what actually makes it happen. So he isn't saying by doing good things, you can gain salvation from that. That's not his point. So I want to make that clear. Now, to me... The most disturbing thing in these verses is found in that verse that, that we see there in verse 19, where he says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But faith without works is dead, you fool, in verse 20. That's disturbing, because he is taking the example of the theology of the demons and he's saying, the demons have it on some of you. The demons have more belief than you do. Because at least demons believe in God, just like you. And they tremble. And some of you aren't even afraid of God at all. Now, this is difficult for us to handle. But think about this for a moment. The reason it, it rattles us is because we have become so attuned to the notion that believing in Christ, becoming a Christian, is all about believing the right things. And so really we think that if you have your theology down, then you're okay with God. So we tell people, you need to believe that Jesus is God. You need to believe that he became a man, that he ended up living a perfect life, dying, coming back from the dead, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, and someday he's going to return. And if you believe all that, it makes you a Christian, right? Well, think about that a little bit. The demons believe all that stuff. 
The demons, as, as vile and as disgusting as they are, they know who Jesus was. They know that he is the Son of God. They know that he died, that he rose from the dead, that he's coming back. In fact, there's a lot of things demons believe that people who call themselves Christians don't believe. For instance, there are a lot of people who are Christians that can't believe that God created the heavens and the earth. And they just go, I don't know about that. Demons know it. They were there with the other angels and watched it happen. Believe me, their creation theology is down solid. They also have no trouble believing in miracles that God has done. Well, they understand the world of the miraculous, no doubt. Again, Jesus rising from the dead, demons don't have a problem with that. They, they readily would admit that. They understand it completely. And some people who call themselves pastors don't even believe that. See, James is trying to get our attention here by, by asking us the question, how is your theology superior to the theology of demons? Because it better be, certainly ought to be. Do you think that you're right with God just because you adhere to the right points of doctrine? The truth is, man, people, I believe that hell is going to be full of people who love to argue theology. I, you know, that, that simple argument of Calvinism versus Arminianism. I believe that for all eternity, people are going to be arguing about that in, in hell. They're going to be down there just going, I'm telling you, we're here because God chose to send us here. And the other one says, I don't believe in double predestination. I think it was our choice that brought us here. And arguing back and forth, the reason I think that argument will take place in hell is that I've had that argument so many times, it starts feeling like hell. <laughs> and a lot of other theological arguments are that way too. And so James is making us consider that it is something more than just believing the right things, than just having an opinion, than just saying that, yep, I like the Lakers. Yep, and Jesus too. Big fan of Lakers, big fan of Jesus. James is going, no, the, the real faith that saves you is a faith that changes your life. And so he deals with salvation, and he goes, it's something more than what many people are experiencing and thinking that they've had it. And he says it demonstrates itself in very practical ways, and he gives some of them. He tells the story about if somebody who's your brother comes and says, I don't have any clothes, and I don't have anything to eat, and you tell them, oh, brother, let me pray for you. Be warmed and be filled. Have a great day, and they leave. Now, James wasn't saying that the Christians were doing that. He's using this as, an, as a ridiculous example. Because, see, in those days, hospitality was huge. In our day, this sounds like, oh, so I guess we should feed hungry. In their day, you were insulting and shaming yourself if you had a chance to take care of a stranger and you didn't do it, and much less your brother. So what he's saying is, you wouldn't do that, would you? Then why in the world do you listen to what God says and not act on it? I mean, why would you say, I'll pray for you and not pray? Do you really think that telling someone that you're going to pray for them is going to do any good? 
lying to people. I mean, and this is hard, and I don't want to be too harsh, but when I tell somebody I'm going to pray for them, I try to pray for them right then. And every day I get a ton of emails from people who, you know, often need prayer. And I make sure before I say I'm praying for you, I do pray for them. Because I don't know if I'm going to remember it later on down the road. So I just try to deal with it right then. If I tell somebody, hey, I'll pray about that, I pray about it right then. Brings up a good question. If I ask for a show of hands, how many of you believe, don't raise your hand, but how many of you really believe that prayer works? That prayer is something where you can ask God and he's going to do what you ask him to do, that it'll change things. Most of us would go, yeah, I believe it. Well, if you really believed it, wouldn't you do it a little bit more honestly? I mean, if you've ever worried about something and not prayed about it, you got to wonder how much you really believe that prayer actually does. It's so cool when you pray for someone and then God answers that prayer. It's, it's amazing, but why don't we do that more often? Because there's a disconnect between the way we live our lives and the way that we actually think that we do. There's a difference. And so James is saying, basically, talk is cheap. If you really care, you'll help people to meet their needs. If you don't, don't say that you do. Don't play that game. Then later on in the chapter, he gives the examples of Abraham and Rahab. Two interesting examples, neither of which I maybe would have chosen as being someone to really stand out as an example. Abraham was a guy that God chose out of a pagan culture and said that he was going to make him a great nation. Later, as God made promises to him, Abraham began to follow God, began to kind of do what God was saying, but he didn't do it specifically, kind of headed. He said, leave your family. He didn't. He said, head, head uh, west. He headed north. And, you know, but he's going along, and at one point, he rescued his nephew, who was living in Sodom, from some kings that were attacking Sodom. And, and the kings who he rescued, um, were, they offered him a bunch of riches. And he said, no, I don't want your money. Then he went to God after meeting up with Melchizedek, um, there in Genesis 14. Um, then he goes to God and he goes, what's in this for me, kind of? And God said, Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. You get me. And then he made this promise, you and Sarah are going to have a kid, and through that child, Isaac, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. A great nation is going to come forth. The Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled. And it says there in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He really believed but what James is saying is the real test, the real declaration, the real justification happened a few chapters later. When he had Isaac, he had everything that he wanted, everything that God had promised, and now God said, okay, now you're going to sacrifice Isaac to me. And what a test. The, the toughest test probably in all of history are you going to believe God or are you going to trust him? Now, Abraham believed God and it was counted for righteousness, but if he had refused to release his son 
to the Lord, we would never know if he believed or not. See, Abraham could have said, you know, that just sounds crazy. And, you know, but God, I, I believe in you, and I believe that if, even if my son died, you could bring him back to life. But, uh, sorry, I'm not playing. I'm checking out of this one. I'm not going to do it. So how do you know he really believed God? The only way we know that Abraham believed God, and it was in this choice that apparently he became the friend of God, was that when God told him to do something that he totally didn't want to do, it went against everything within his nature. At that point, he made a difficult decision that he had nothing to gain from doing it and everything to lose. And God said, now I'm talking about faith because you are willing to make that kind of a decision. And James uses this as an example, and it, it makes us think, what are we willing to let go of? What is it that we treasure that we would say, oh, this is a gift from God? Really? Are you willing to lose it? Because if it's a gift from God, you'll be willing to let go of what you have. Anyone can follow God and just continue to, to be blessed by God and do everything that they already want to do. You go, man, I came to the Lord and he gave me a wife or a husband and things are great. And we have a wonderful life, good jobs. He's blessing us. We have a lot, church that we love and everything. Okay, good. But you haven't been tested yet. When times become more difficult, now we're going to find out what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to release or let go of? How much are you willing to take? That's what tests your faith. That's what will show what you really believe. Now, James then goes on to the story of Rahab. You might remember this story, but if not, children of Israel, the Jews, were about to go into the promised land. And the first big city that they faced, a walled city, was called Jericho, just across the border. They sent a couple of spies in to see what was up with Jericho and what they were up against. And these spies came to a house of prostitution that was, that was owned by Rahab. Rahab was far from being a follower of God. She had heard rumors about the children of Israel and things like that and how they had escaped from Egypt, but for some reason, she decided to protect these spies. Now, the spies would have been killed by the soldiers from Jericho had she not lied to protect them, hid them, and then showed them how to sneak away, a back way to get out of there. As a result of that choice that she made, risking her own life to save the lives of people who couldn't defend themselves, as a result of that, she is cited here as an example of faith. And sure enough, if you know the story, they had her hang a cord out the window of her house, and when the whole city fell down, her house was left standing because of that one choice that she made to protect the innocent, to do what God was speaking to her to do. Now, again, she ends up being listed in Hebrews 11, along with Abraham, as being members of the Hall of Faith, as being great examples of faith. And you go, that's weird. Because, I mean, maybe I haven't, protected anyone at my own peril, but I'm no prostitute. Or you go look at Abraham and you go, 
Really? You really want to make a guy a hero because he was willing to sacrifice his own son? Hey, let the kid get a little older. Believe me, a lot of people would be willing. But <laughs> not really. But the point is that James is making is these people came to a crossroads in their life where they had to decide, am I going to do what God tells me to do? Am I going to do what's right? Or am I just going to sit back and say, yeah, I believe, but I'm not doing it. I'm not, it doesn't work for me. And everyone listed in Hebrews 11 is that way. I mean, there are some notorious people in there. I think of Samson, the guy who probably had more potential than anyone maybe in the history of the nation of Israel. You can read about him over in Judges. And Samson, who had this supernatural strength and this great ability and charisma, he had so much going for him, full of potential, and yet he squandered all of that ability. He used his strength mostly to play childish pranks. You know, he once caught a bunch of foxes and tied them up and lit their tails on fire and sent them running through the fields of the enemy. Another time he took the gates of the city on his back and started showing off with that. Um, pretty much his life was a disaster. The guy was a dirtbag from the word go. We, you know, going from cheap woman to cheap woman, he was so stupid. He could, I mean, he, he would believe anything. And the, and the guy is not someone that we would say, oh yeah, I want to be like Samson when I grow up. But the deal with Samson is, finally at the end of his life, he had a choice to make. And he could sacrifice himself and destroy the enemies of God, or he could sit there and feel sorry for himself. And finally, in his last act, one of the only noble acts that he had committed in his life, at the expense of his life, he brought the house down on the enemies of God. You know the story. And as a result, the author of Hebrews says, that's what faith looks like. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now James, again, he's going to some of these heroes of the faith and saying, here's how faith works. Faith means that you are willing to do something that you don't want to do. Faith means that you are trusting God when you don't understand. It means that there's a difference that God is making in your life. And so, as he says you know, earlier when he said, look, you can tell me you have faith all you want. Show it to me. Show me your faith. And the only way you're going to show me your faith is by your works. Now, you can have a lot of good works without it being based on faith. There are plenty of other reasons for doing good things other than just as a, as a fruit of your faith. There, you know, you get attention. It makes you feel good when you do, you know, gratuitous and kind things to others. They owe you, and maybe they'll give back to you. There are all sorts of works out there. But if there's really faith, there are going to be works, or, as James says, faith without works is just dead. So the test for all of us is, how's the Christian life working for us? What kind of results are there? Do we end up just looking like everybody else, but like, yeah, I know Jesus. Maybe you know Jesus. Does he know you? 
There are a whole category of people to whom someday at judgment he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to be like shocked. I, I, th- I knew you. I cheered for you. I voted for you. And he goes, I didn't know you. And the difference, according to James, how you live out your life. Now again, he's not saying this to say, so you better do good things. His whole point is, do you want to know if your faith is real? Do you want to know if you're really saved? You know, another really upsetting book is the book of 1 John. Because John makes a bunch of statements that says, you know, things such as, if you don't love your brother, then you don't know God. If you think you love God and you don't love your brother, you're crazy. And he makes these radical statements, and at the end of the book, in chapter 5, he says, but these are written that you may know that you have eternal life. So what's John saying? The same thing that James is saying. I'm not trying to get you to do good things so that you'll get saved. I'm trying to call you back to, to ascertain and to discern and to evaluate as to whether what you actually have has really rescued you from anything. Or have you just joined a big holy club? Are you just finding it pleasurable and interesting to hang out with people who have similar views to what you have? Is this more of a political decision? Is this more of a social decision than it is a life-changing commitment? Because the truth is, you cannot know that you're right with God unless what you have is actually working. You're actually doing something about it. Now, don't put the cart before the horse and start doing good things so that you can feel better about what what it is that you have with God. No, his whole point would be, get back to square one. And if this life isn't working for you, come back to a point of repentance. Maybe it's time for you to once again start over with God. Maybe this is a time when you need to evaluate that maybe you look and sound like a Christian, but maybe there isn't that reality in your life. And I think this is healthy for all of us to look at how life is working for us and say, is there something real here? Do I have actual faith? Because faith without works is dead. Faith that's dead isn't faith at all. Oh, it might be faith in something, but the faith that saves you It's not faith in your Christian friends. It's not faith in your church. It's not even faith in the Bible. It's it's not faith in theology. It's a faith that involves a commitment to say, I want to live my life for Jesus Christ. And when we make that kind of a commitment, you can totally tell if it's real or not because it makes a difference. And James just hammers this over and over, but he zooms in on it right here in this chapter, and he gets down to business and confronts us concerning our faith. And I know that he would want each of us to consider this long and hard. Not only what am I doing, but why am I doing what I'm doing? What difference is there in my life? There's nothing that, that the devil would love more than to make you think you're okay with God because you pray a little prayer, because you go to church, or because you agree with certain theological tenets, and you disagree with others, and you like to argue with people about God, the devil would love for you to have all that 
and not have your life transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. And so that's what James is talking about. Now, again, you can see why people who are oriented toward grace could have an issue with this. And, you know, because we read so much from Paul and Paul, having grown up in a legalistic background, understood the danger of people who think they get saved by works. And so he is constantly emphasizing grace. And as a result, people would go, you got Paul over here, you got James over here, who are you going to believe? Martin Luther, the great reformer, didn't like the book of James. He knew that it was supposed to be in the canon of Scripture, but he called it an epistle of straw because he just thought, people read this, they're going to get the idea that you get saved by what you do, not by who you put your faith in. But it's a false dichotomy to say, here you got James, and here you got Paul. Remember and think a little bit, most of us are pretty familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And we hang our hat on it and we live by it. And that's where Paul said, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's an important and a powerful truth. We don't get saved by works. If we did, we'd brag about it. Salvation is by grace through faith. <coughs> James wouldn't deny that, by the way. No one who's a Christian would deny that. However, when we come to that passage, we almost always stop at the end of verse 9, and we don't go on to verse 10, where Paul, after he says, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What's the next thing he says? For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God has before ordained that you would walk in them. Why do we leave that off? Because we want to fool ourselves into thinking that we're done by voting for Jesus and at communion drinking a toast to him and not making that life-changing decision that says, I'm willing to live my life for him. But what Paul said after saying, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works, he says the whole point of it is works. The whole point of it is that God wants your life to work. And James just goes on and on saying, if you're not a generous person, it's not working. If you are a prideful person, it's not working. If you are an angry person or a selfish person, it's not working. If you're living your life in foolishness, it's not working. If you're abusing wealth, it's not working. If you are a prejudiced person, it's not working. He's just going, come on, man. There's a bunch of people who think they're in the tent who aren't, and they don't understand the nature of faith. Now, at the same time, let me say, uh, he's not saying that you need to be perfect or you're not a Christian. He doesn't want you to be looking at your life and just scared to death. He wants you to be confident. But the way that that happens is when you can look at your life and see that God has changed you. When, when you can see that there's a maturity that's going on, that although I'm not perfect, I'm making some progress. And I, and, I, and I start to stand out. Other people look at me and go, I don't know how you could deal with what you've dealt with and still 
hang in there the way you have. And you go, well, sometimes I just go home and cry at night. But it's true. God has done things in my life that are powerful. And as you look at your life, and if you can cite things that you are doing that you don't want to do and that you don't benefit from and that don't help you, but you do it for the good of others, then you should take great comfort in the book of James. Because you're going, I am doing things to help feed some people. I am doing things to show sympathy toward others. I am doing things that let other people know what Jesus has done for them. I am praying for people. I am doing all of these kind of things, and I'm doing it because it's just a natural function of my relationship with God. Um, But there may be people in a group this size probably not third service, they were all in second service, but there may be people who are, have been tooling along just thinking they're fine with God, and the reality is life's just not working for you. The fruit of your life, what comes out, who you are, is just not reflective of a person who has been transformed by the living God. And I don't want you to feel guilty about it or beat yourself up. All I would say is, The remedy for you is the remedy for all of us. On each day, we need to repent of our sin. We need to confess our sins, admit to God that what he says is wrong is wrong, and that we participate in it. And we need to ask his spirit to come and to fill us and to make us loving, joyful, peaceful people, that that's what happens when the Spirit is there. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And then to open our lives up and say, God, if there's anything that you want me to do, any sacrifice you want me to make, I'm up for it. I just want to obey you, God. And making that decision, praying that prayer, if it's the first time you've ever done it and meant it, we call it being born again, becoming a Christian. But if you've done it before and you consider yourself a Christian, but you're not seeing a lot of the fruit of that, then call it whatever you want. You can say you're backslidden, or you can say this is what a good Christian does every day, because it really is. That's how we live our lives. And the more you see it working, the more you're going to feel assured that you're a child of God. God doesn't want you to wonder whether you're saved or not, unless you're not. He wants you to live your life in such a way that Christianity actually works for you. As Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When they see that we are doing good things, it gets their attention. We don't do it so they'll see it. We do it because of what he's done for us. But if we do it, they will see. They will, they'll know the difference. They'll be able to, to see that. And so... May God help all of us to live in the consistency of a truly faithful life instead of just being those who, yeah, we're on Jesus' side. If it's Jesus against the devil, whoo yeah, I'm a Christian. No, let's live walking in that kind of faith. Let's pray. Lord, it just deeply upsets me saddens me that the possibility that there might be people who listen to me teach the Bible every week and yet they have it in their head, they have a good theology like demons do, but they've never placed their trust in you enough to actually live this life out. 
If there's anyone here right now who's in that position, God, I just pray that you would speak to their hearts. Help them not to argue with this stuff. Help them not to be deceived, to listen to the eyes of, listen to the voice of the enemy who is, who is scoping them out and trying to destroy them by making them think they're okay when they're not. Lord, help each of us to look at our lives with a perspective of honesty. And if it's not working, if our faith doesn't have works to, to prove it, help us to be honest enough to come to you and to repent, to turn to you with all of our hearts. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. We're sorry for the times that we abuse it, but help us to walk in, in true faith, a faith that results in works. In Jesus' name, amen.